Hello and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company. This is a collection of conversations with people who have all successfully started, run and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next or never. Hosted by me, Juliet Fallowfield, founder of PR consultancy for startups Fallowfield and Mason. Given many founders are experts in their particular fields, but not when it comes to the more technical side of things, I wanted to create this mini-series that provides listeners with a practical checklist covering all sorts of topics including accounting, legal, HR and recruitment, as well as investment. This all falls under the umbrella of I don't know what I don't know. And given when you're starting out, you have so many questions, I hope to answer a lot of them for you here. However, of course, there are always more. So please don't hesitate to leave your questions at the SpeakPipe link in the show notes. The one piece of advice every How to Startup guest has shared unanimously is to find a good accountant. However, as it took me a while to find the right one to support my business, I thought it would be beneficial to concentrate an episode around this and talk through what you should be thinking about when approaching an accountant, as well as what questions to ask. In this episode, we hear from Chartered Accountant Laurie Borlace. Laurie qualified with the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales and has 12 years of accounting experience working for a variety of different companies. And he's been running his own practice, Redbrick Accounting, for the last three years. Full disclosure, Laurie is Fallowfield and Mason's accountant, as well as my personal one too, and I can highly recommend his firm as they specialise in startups, SMEs and contractors. Hi Laurie, thank you so much for joining How to Start Up today. It would be wonderful if you could give a little bit of background about yourself and the company that you started. So my name is Laurie, I am the director and uh, sole founder of Redbrick Accounting Limited. We're basically a small accountancy firm. The motto is a home for startups finances or a home for your finances. And that pretty much sums up what we try to do, which is create a home, a place where people feel comfortable. I mean, all of the synonyms you associate with homeliness and familiarity and all of those nice, warm, fuzzy things associated to your business numbers, because if you don't feel comfortable around those (laughs) uh, (laughs) and they don't have a home, then uh, your business may not do as well as it potentially could going forwards. Well, it's really interesting you say that because as you know, and as I know, every single person in every single podcast I've interviewed has said, you need to get a good accountant if you're starting your own company. So it'd be wonderful if you could just talk through what someone like me starting a company today should do first. Sure. I mean, it's a massive question. To try and keep it as simple as possible and from a Jillian accounting and a numbers perspective, your goal is to understand and know your numbers inside out. And that doesn't necessarily start with an accountant. That can start just with an Excel spreadsheet and yourself and your plan for the business and your knowledge of whichever industry you're starting the business in. There are also some softwares out there you could potentially use. Again, you don't need strictly to hire an accountant, but as an accountant, I would very much uh, (laughs) see the benefits. And I, I, you know, (laughs) I think even if I were to start a business that wasn't in accounting, I would still hire an accountant simply just on the, it's, it's admin work that isn't growing my business uh, necessarily and adding value. I mean, you can add value via the accounting, but first and foremost is the compliance function, making sure that you're legally compliant and doing everything you're supposed to do. And then 
you can build on top of that with the numbers to look forward and project and forecast and, and budget. And something I learned when you're going into being self-employed, you have the option of being a limited company or a sole trader. I think as a limited company, there is a compliance annual statement that you need to do that you would need an accountant to do for you. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's the uh, the annual uh, declaration of compliance. It's been called many things over the years. Confirmation statement, I think is the latest term, but it's basically just a submission which says, you know, directors haven't changed. Share capital has remained the same. We're not listing our shares on any public markets. These are the people who have significant influence over the business. Once you've done a few as an accountant, they don't take masses of, of time. But again, with accounting, you don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot of information and misinformation on the internet. And what you're really paying the accountant for is to look through that information with the lens that they've hopefully gathered over their uh, many years of experience. Um, and like from my, my own perspective, you know, I've worked in, in larger companies, small companies, freelanced for like 12 years. As things come up enough, you kind of learn through doing and you can spot the wheat from the chaff of what is credible on the internet and what is not. But one good principle and one kind of rule of thumb too, in fact, is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And to HMRC, which is obviously the regulatory body in the UK, they tend to err on the side of caution and they are more conservative. So if you're in doubt and you can't afford an accountant or you're, you're getting conflicting advice from different people, whether accountants or non-accountants, would be to err on the side of caution and go, are HMRC going to think this is <laughs> reasonable and sensible? Chances are, is if you're uncertain on that question and things are a little bit grey, the answer is probably, hmm, probably shouldn't do this. <laughs> so day one, when you're looking at your projections and your company numbers, is it also obviously quite a good idea to have done your personal budget mapping at the same time? Sure. I mean, you, you can be going into it from various different situations, right? Like you could have been made redundant. You could have chosen to go down this route, could be a serial entrepreneur, but like whichever group you fit in, you need to be sure that as an individual, you can support yourself. I would argue that, to be honest, tracking your finances, your personal finances in the capitalist world we live in is always going to serve you well and help you well. So yeah, I would always advise to be tracking your finances. Uh, you find there's two different schools of thought. A lot of people will track their costs individually on like a receipt basis and they like budgets and they like to really track their spend whereas others and I fall in this second category just tend to track what their net worth is doing what their wealth is doing whether their total assets are going up or down from month to month it's kind of the overall movement and the trend as opposed to the minutiae and sort of granular detail and it's not burying your head in the sand and pretending like it's going to go away. You absolutely need to be across it. 100%. Because I would argue that if you are not very good at managing your personal finances, or at least don't even have a rough idea of what's going on, then you are going to have to find somebody very good for your business to help you. Or the only other businesses I see which tend to survive whilst not having a good grip at the numbers are those that are so focused on just like revenue and selling and are just so exceptional at what they do. I mean, these very much are the minority. Most businesses have to manage their cash flow because it, it can be tight. Um, you know, and if you're not comfortable, you need to get comfortable. And if you're not comfortable in your own comfort, then find somebody else who can help you or is comfortable themselves. Do you have advice for somebody who's seeking accountancy support, what they should be asking that accountant or what they should be briefing them on even? Sure. I mean, there are so many aspects to this. It's very hard to give a succinct answer because essentially I have to take into account who the client is personally, mm -hmm. what legal structure are they going to follow? Are they going to be a sole trader? Are they going to be a limited company, an LLP? I mean, if we just keep it solely and small, what industry are they then in? Uh, how are they trading? You know, 
which jurisdictions are they trading in? There are so many areas, so many questions to ask. Every client is essentially different in many ways. So the first thing to do is if you are going to choose an accountant, I have a personal preference towards chartered accountants and you can go on any chartered body. There's four main ones in the UK. Uh, there are some others, but I think the four main ones is the ICAW, uh, CIMA, ACCA, and then Scotland and Ireland also have one. So ICAS is Scotland and ICAI is Ireland. And all of them should have a publicly accessible members registry, which you can search. They also have usually business advice lines. Um, I've had quite a few referrals come through the IACAW, because I think my details are public on there. So that always gives you a good idea of their credibility, because as part of that membership, they would have had to do three years worth of accredited training, 15 or so exams, and then continued professional development every year. It just gives you a benchmark, you know, that you're getting a minimum standard. When someone's coming to you to say, I'd like to employ your service as an accountant, how should they best present themselves to you? Is there anything that someone could prepare? I, mean, well, I, I have a questionnaire, which I, I send to prospective clients with a lot of the questions that I would like to know. But some of those questions might be things like how many transactions are going through your bank account? Or if you're not quite trading yet, how many do you anticipate going through? You know, When are you due to start trading? Again, this will very much depend on the nature of the business. I need to have an understanding of kind of revenue flow, how regular payments are going to be entering into your business what sort of quantities are we talking about what methods and processing gateways are they coming in through particularly if it's an online business this is very relevant because <laughs> there's so many different payment gateways out there um, and different ways to operate particularly if you're selling internationally another main area would be i'd need to know if you were an inventory business whether you hold physical stock stock businesses in general tend to be a lot more complicated so that's one thing to bear in mind is your accountant might charge you more money because it's more work from their point of view also so personal details. So all accredited accountants will have to do like anti-money laundering checks. They have to check that you're who you say you are and get identification from you. And lots of people have asked me this when I first started. Is like, well, are you a sole trader or a limited company? Is it possible you could give a quick overview of why you would choose to be a limited company versus a sole trader and vice versa? Sure. So usually running a limited company is more tax efficient. That's because you take a lower salary and you top up your salary with dividends. And depending on the income of the individual in the business, people will often take out up to £50,000, which is the higher rate tax threshold above which you start being charged 40% tax. But up until then, I think you can get away with an effective rate that's much lower than that. But from a sole trader point of view, you're going to be taxed uh, as an individual on your total income. There's no distinction between salaries and dividends and dividends are taxed at a lower rate than salary. So that's kind of the first kind of difference. And then the other big difference is liability. So company is limited because it's limited by shares or guarantee. What is limited? The uh, liability is limited. So if anything goes wrong with your trading and you haven't got the appropriate insurances, you can't be held personally liable because there's this kind of corporate veil which sits in between you and the other party. Whereas when you're a sole trader, you know, you're going to be taking all the risk yourself. I mean, there's many cases and stories of people losing their houses and their livelihoods because they didn't incorporate as a limited company. So that would be the main difference. But you also have to bear in mind that with a limited company, your costs are probably going to be a bit higher because you have compliance costs of running the company. You also have legal obligations and responsibilities for being a director. I mean, if you just Google director responsibilities, they'll come up there. Just like if you become an employer, you have employment law responsibilities. You, you basically fall foul of more and more legislation and the more legislation that affects you, 
the the more compliant you have to be. Mm-hmm. And there's no third option, is there? Well, there's partnership. I mean, you have different types of partnership as well. You can have an incorporated partnership, like an LLP or you unincorporated partnership. I don't actually have any partnerships on my accounts, so I have probably less experience dealing with them, the respective pros and cons, but they are options. You can actually, I think, go on Wikipedia and look in every country in the world. It gives you a summary of all the different incorporated bodies that you can have. So for example, if you were just running a small community-focused for-profit group, you might choose to set up a community interest company, a CIC, instead of a limited company or just being a sole trader. It might be an option. So in terms of once you're up and running and you're trading and invoicing, what should somebody be thinking about doing next? And I know tax is obviously a big year-end date. So I wanted to ask what your advice would be around that. Sure. So I mean, there are some good rules of thumb. What I like to do with clients, as I'm doing with yourself, uh, Julia, is come the end of the tax year in the UK, which is the 5th of April. I like to talk to you about what your projections and anticipated personal circumstances are going to be in the coming tax year because the company and yourself as an individual don't operate independently of each other. They're quite dependent on one another. So I try to get an idea of both of them and then put in a plan at the beginning of each year, a remuneration plan, where we kind of set a fixed amount of salary and dividend each month, just because it helps people have stability, consistency, predictability. They can get a rough idea of how they're going to live their life over the next year. And plus, a lot of people are coming into sole tradership or running their own business from having been employed where they're used to having a regular paycheck. Now, not all accountants do this. Some of them will just say, take out what you like each month, assuming you have enough cash. And then at the year end, if you've got enough money, (laughs) we'll allocate it to salary, dividends and a director loan, but I would say it's quite a convoluted way of dealing with it. I think when you start getting into director loan territory, you're just making it potentially more complicated than it needs to be. I mean, there are cash flow benefits short term to it, but I would say if you know if you can avoid it, it's a lot easier just to have a fixed amount every month and then look at the amount of net assets that you can distribute at the end of the year and go, right, so we've already had the, this amount of salary, this amount of dividends, we're here at the 5th of April. What else could we declare if we wanted to? And what effect would that have on our taxes? Oh, this much. All right, we'll do that. And then that's it then. And then you set the plan for the next year. I find that a lot easier. But again, all accountants and individuals will work differently. Well, something that I came across when I was interviewing for an accountant, (laughs) you need to put money aside for year end, but you also need to budget for your accountant bill. So whatever the accountant is going to charge in a lump sum at the year end. And I know that's something you don't do and that I really appreciate you bill quarterly. So there's not one sting a year, but that's something also people should be aware to budget for. You also need to think about insurance and pensions. Is there anything else you think people should be thinking about? I think just the two things to say on insurance and pension. One would be on insurance, you want to check that the client that you're dealing with the industry you're operating in doesn't actually require insurance because I know in some fields I think public liability insurance is compulsory you know in case you injure a member of the public and I know for example that from my own accountancy firm in order to be part of the Institute of Chartered Accountants I have to get a minimum threshold of insurance every year in order for my membership to be renewed so I guess you can tie that into what we said earlier as well That's another benefit of going with a chartered accountant is you know they're going to have an insurance requirement for professional indemnity insurance if they're negligent towards you. And that might give you a bit of extra comfort over, say, man off the street who calls himself an accountant who doesn't owe any insurance and then is negligent with your accounts and you have no recourse because the contract is also not very good. And then just on pensions, I would say many (laughs) business owners consider their business as their pension. And I know more and more people these days who are, depending on what they earn, aren't taking official pensions anymore. They're putting it into 
other asset classes which they have full control over because of course with a pension it's very hard to access the money unless you work through some sort of complicated scheme in order to change your pension provider but yeah most people won't have access to something like that yeah so the question you've got to ask is you'll need cash as a business owner how much of your cash do you want to be tied up until you're 67 or whatever it's going to be and the whole podcast is based on what we should be doing now next or never is there any holes in the road that people should be wary of that they may not have considered I think the main thing is that people are aware of all of the regulatory dates, particularly if they don't hire an accountant. And like you say, make sure they keep enough cash aside in order to cover their tax bills. General kind of rule, your period of accounts will usually be a 12-month period. And then the statutory obligation to file your accounts and pay your tax bill is nine months in one day after the year end. So if your accounting period finishes on the 31st of December, then by the 1st of September the following year, you would have had to have filed and paid everything. Okay, that money has to go locked away somewhere. I think that's where a few people have said they've come undone. Is there anything else that you would flag as something that people need to not do? Self-assessment is another one to watch out for because when you first become self-employed, you end up paying your tax in arrears. So you don't pay it until after you've earned it, but then you switch from the next year to being in advance. And that often hits people quite hard because they just expect it to be in arrears again, but it's not. They have to pay in arrears plus then in advance as well. So it can be a very big bill. It can even become bigger if you've got a student loan as well. And people often forget to add their student loan onto their self-assessment and get a nasty surprise. All the more reason to have an accountant to point these things out. Is there any other golden nugget of advice that you'd like to offer somebody starting out? One thing would be believing in yourself and, you know, anything being possible if you believe it to be possible. I mean, it sounds a bit like a cliche. And of course, we all have limitations in the empirical world, but that kind of self-belief. And I have a favorite quote, which is perception is reality, because in many ways, as long as you can perceive things in your head, you can believe them to be true. Whether or not people believe what's actually going on in reality, I think is so important important for uh, for business you know it's where vision and innovation and drive come from well for me anyway is the hope of a better future <laughs> well and also protecting your energy around it whatever you can do to keep your enthusiasm and your drive going all the better thank you so much laurie i really appreciate everything you shared and i'm sure it will really help other people starting out as well you're welcome thank you for having me I've so appreciated all Laurie's practical advice. He has been an incredible support to me during my first foray into setting up a company and it's great to have an expert partner in an area I'm not familiar with. If you'd like to contact Laurie, you can find all of his details in the show notes along with a recap of the advice he has so kindly shared. Thank you for listening to How to Start Up. I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it will really help other people starting a company discover it.